Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest Dr. Daniel Kim, founder and president of Sweetwater Digital Asset Consulting, for an intriguing discussion on cryptocurrency, including the history of this asset class and how to identify a quality cryptocurrency project. This episode also includes Dr. Kim's take on the research and advisory services available to provide investors guidance in considering cryptocurrency exposure for their portfolios. My name is David Warren. I'm co-founder of Bridgeford Trust Company and chairman of the board and very excited uh, to continue our podcast series uh, with my friend, Dr. Uh, Kim. Um, He is a a relatively new friend to Bridgeford and I had the great fortune, um, boy, I'm trying to think of how long it was now, maybe maybe a little more than a year ago, uh, Dr. Kim and I came in contact uh, through some information on our website and um, subsequently had the opportunity to meet in New York City at the Harvard Club and get to know each other. And I soon found out uh, that Dr. Kim has tremendous expertise in the crypto space, uh, which is uh, a, a continues to be a red-hot area, um, somewhat controversial, I concede, but still an area that is, that is continuing to grow in, in, a, in an area that Bridgeford has a lot of interest in, uh, having worked with clients with considerable uh, crypto um, holdings and, and working to find ways to, to bring the power of South Dakota's trust solution to these, uh, to these um, assets. And so Dr. Kim, with all of his years of experience, uh, really was involved from the very beginning. Um, and we, we quickly found a common passion for what he knows and what we know in, in, at the trust company level and have been able to do some great work together. Um, and so I am thrilled that he's agreed to be part of our podcast. He's a, a sought-after speaker um, in this space, uh, speaking at a very large conferences in, in, um, in, uh, in, in Las Vegas coming up, which he will share. Um, but very briefly, before we, we formally uh, bring Dr. Kim in, I want to talk a little bit about his background, which is extraordinarily impressive. Um, Dr. Kim is, is, is Harvard-trained. Uh, having received his undergraduate degrees and, and graduate degrees, including a PhD in physics from Harvard. Um, worked in the nonprofit area as a, as a classically trained musician, which we'll talk a little bit about, which is, is very interesting to me. Uh, subsequently went on to get his MBA from Yale uh, and went into the, uh, the for-profit world. Um, but before that, he taught at a, at a medical school, and then he went into the for-profit world, uh, got involved with finance and, and worked in different hedge fund environments. Uh, but ultimately, you know, his passion became cryptocurrency, probably because of his keen understanding of it um, from an academic's perspective and the technology around it, which, which is interesting as we get into the questions. Dr. Kim has an, a, a, a different perspective than what you hear in sort of pop culture about crypto. He talks about it in a much more intellectual way. He has historical perspective and, and, and positions it in a way that, that makes it much more, uh, in my opinion, credible uh, as an asset class because clearly cryptocurrency is not going away. Uh, I think we need to embrace that. And when I say we, I mean the financial services industry, the planners, attorneys, accountants. Uh, it's no longer and should no longer be just some sort of a punchline, in my opinion, which is a big reason why I wanted and, and was hoping Dr. Kim would do this with us. And, and I look forward to the opportunity to, to work together, particularly as Dr. Kim has launched his 
company as a consultant in this space, which which we'll talk about. So um, with that somewhat uh, uh, long introduction, Dr. Kim, I apologize, but there is a lot to say about you. Welcome to the podcast. Um, we were thrilled you're here. So thank you for being here. Thanks, David, for the invitation. I'm glad to be uh, speaking to your listeners and uh, I'm glad to be working with you uh, as we uh, look to kind of bridge a couple of different constituencies. So uh, people who are interested in cryptocurrency, people who are interested in preserving assets for future generations through trusts. Excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about your history before we jump into the, the crypto topic. You know, you have a fascinating background and, um, and maybe you could pepper that with how and when you got, in, you got interested in crypto in the first place. Because as I remember it, you were interested in it long before most of the world even knew what it was. So please. Tell us about sure. that. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, growing up, I was uh, born in Wyoming, actually. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated here from uh, South Korea, and they jumped through all the hoops to become American citizens about 50 years ago. Uh, so I grew up in kind of the mountain states uh, where there's this uh, kind of openness, um, and I think maybe that, that might have shaped some of my thinking. Um, and then moved to Montana after that, and then I ended up going to... Uh, high school in Michigan, and and from there, uh, did uh, my undergrad at Harvard, uh, and stayed for my PhD. Now, um, yeah, after that, my first job out of grad school actually was that I had won an audition with the Syracuse Symphony Orchestra. So, uh, initially as a first violinist, but then the keyboard seat opened up, and I uh, I transitioned to that. Uh, and I think the uh, nonprofit symphony orchestra setting is interesting and it actually relates to cryptocurrencies in that both uh, both projects are composed of highly motivated and idealistic people who are arguably vastly underpaid for what it is that they do uh, and so the the organizational structure is uh, built more on a sense of idealism and I think you find this to be true also for us for the original sort of cryptocurrencies, uh, for example, Bitcoin. Uh, maybe not so much for the more profit-oriented uh, ventures that have uh, sprung up in great numbers since the development of Bitcoin, uh, but at least for these original uh, you know, open source, uh, not company-driven uh, like public projects, uh, it's uh, there's commonality with the uh, the sort of nonprofit uh, work structure. Um, mm, that's, that is fascinating. That's interesting. Well, well, let me ask you this: if I could interrupt, you, you what what transitioned you into the MBA world and and the the finance world? Because you know, I I think your your knowledge of hedge funds and finance in conjunction with crypto is also I think a little unusual because a lot of the folks I meet know a lot about one or the other, but not both. So talk to me about right. that. Well, I think as far as degrees go, uh, PhD and especially you know something specialized like experimental particle physics, which is what my thesis was on, uh, kind of signals a uh, ability to go deep into something technical and you know the, mm -hmm. the ability to stick with something uh, until you can generate some something new that hasn't been you know discovered before. Uh, in contrast, an MBA was designed to be a broad degree, right? It was designed for kind of mid middle managers who were being groomed to take over upper management positions. And so uh, it was designed to be something broad uh, and deliberately not deep, but uh, something that gave a, a broad perspective to managers. 
So I think the combination is good, uh, basically a, a STEM PhD combined with an MBA. Um, and my decision was uh, based partly uh, on my being a medical school professor, which uh, was a second job I held concurrently with the symphony orchestra job. Um, there's, um, mm. There are a few uh, places in medicine where uh, PhDs can work alongside MDs, and, and uh, radiology and radiation oncology are two of those. So I ended up being a medical physics professor uh, in radiation oncology, which basically means uh, a technical expertise in the machinery that delivers uh, high-intensity radiation to cancer patients. So in this capacity, I did both clinical work uh, and also helped uh, MDs who were seeking to become uh, specialists and get certified by the American Board of Radiology to, to uh, pass their exams on the, on the physics portion. So while doing that, I also became very involved in the computer technology that uh, governs the operation of these sophisticated machines. I uh, became very interested in data integrity and uh, coming up with ways to ensure that the data that is used to deliver uh, patient treatments is uh, in, in fact what was intended to be delivered uh, and actually ended up patenting a, a, a solution that, that did a basic uh, double check of patient data uh, before delivery. So it's always been an interest of mine uh, to think about uh, integrity of data um, and uh, assurance of data uh, and security of data. And so when the Bitcoin white paper came out in uh, late 2008, uh, I read it, um, I think it was just maybe a year after it came out, uh, was my first exposure to it. Uh, but uh, I saw pretty quickly that it was a very interesting project. Um, the thing is, uh, I, I wasn't sure whether it would be even allowed to own it because uh, the at that time the government had not uh, come out with any sort of uh, green light for it. That didn't come till later when FinCEN uh, put out some guidance uh, describing conditions under which companies involved in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies would be regulated. Uh, but it was not a sort of uh, condemnation of this technology. Uh, rather, it was mm -hmm. a kind of nuanced uh, description of, of uh, conditions under which certain companies would be subject to uh, regulations. So, yeah, I, I was not a super early uh, adopter of Bitcoin. You know, I didn't buy uh, at, uh, you know, 50 cents like uh, some people uh, were wise <laughs> enough right. to do. Uh, partly because I was uh, very cautious and uh, hesitant uh, and wanted to make sure that there was full you know, legal assurance before going, going into it. Sure. Well, a couple of questions around that, because you know, one of the things I'm fascinated about is, is how there seems to have been developed a negative connotation or, or, or some sort of presumption that people who deal in crypto are nefarious people. And and I'm interested in that because I you know as as you discovered it back in 2008 and became involved with it, you know it certainly wasn't built for that reason obviously. So, talk talk to me a little bit about the history of why it was created in your view and in, in your research, 
and then um, and I, I guess in a way that that juxtaposes it from the concept that it's nefarious because I I don't think in, by design it was nefarious or at least by in, in in creation it wasn't meant to be nefarious. Am I yeah, right? I would agree with that. Uh, the um, it's not known who the creator or creators of Bitcoin were. Um, they went by the pseudonym uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, and you know once in a while you'll see press reports claiming that they found who it is, but it's none of them have uh, panned out. So it's not known who developed this technology, but uh, one of the first uh, indications of their motivation was uh, uh, reference to the Financial Times of London and a uh, story on the bank bailouts that were happening around the time of the financial crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. So the technology was, I think, uh, designed to be a liberating force to allow people to uh, store value in a system that is that is not controlled by central authorities. Uh, so the system of um, money that we have is uh, governed by central banks. Uh, in the United States, we have the Federal Reserve, and there are corresponding central banks around the world that uh, basically hold the levers to their money supply. They're the ones who can order the printing of more money or uh, you know, retract the circulation of money. And these kind of central entities are highly trusted. They, they're, they're crucial in the world today. Um, unfortunately, the financial crisis showed that uh, they're not perfect. And um, there are other kind of instances of unfortunate situations that have happened because the, the idea of money is so uh, bound to the idea of a central gatekeeper keeping that money. So, for example, there was a national U.S. bank that was uh, somewhat recently in the news for uh, basically taking their own customers' uh, identities and opening fake new bank accounts with those identities and then using those fake uh, bank accounts to generate fees for the, for the bank. Uh, you know, these, this sort of situation happens because you, you have, again, a central authority, uh, a gatekeeper, who is in control of the you know, digital ones and zeros that represent people's uh, wealth in bank accounts, and, and taking advantage of that uh, privilege to, unfortunately, uh, inflict harm on innocent you know, people. So there are stories like this, and, and I don't mean to paint a picture that, uh, that the banking system is, uh, you know, beyond hope, but um, it certainly is not, uh, um, has not lived up to its ideals on, on several occasions. So, so really what we're talking about was a, a creation of an alternative um, currency and not a, uh, a currency to do and be used for bad things is what I'm hearing. Yeah, say. right. It was designed to be a... a so anyway, uh, if you think about what money really is, it's, it's really a, uh, a shared illusion or a shared agreement among a, a group of people to use a certain accounting system to keep track of who has been a net credit to society and therefore deserves to use some of its resources and, and who is on the opposite side of that, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, Historically, it's been easiest for governments to, uh, to be the uh, enforcers or the, the leaders of, 
of this sort of system. So basically, all of the citizens under a certain government um, agree to use a certain form of, uh, of value. Uh, in Bitcoin, the key innovation of the Satoshi white paper is that it's now possible to have a form of digital scarcity that does not require a central authority to maintain that digital scarcity. So in effect, it becomes like a, a new community of people who agree that the, uh, that the underlying math and uh, game theory behind the Bitcoin um, network is sound enough that they that they trust that uh, well that they trust the network enough that they assign value to the accounting system represented by Bitcoin. So it's it's really uh, it amounts to the separation of church and money. So uh, mm. for those who think that the separation of church and state was a good idea. Uh, you know, there, there's a sort of a similar um, idea to think about is that, you know, sure. for all our lives, we've been trained to think of uh, value as being um, only something that is given to us by a state apparatus. Um, and maybe mm -hmm. that need not necessarily be the case. So, and I've also avoided using the word currency here because I think that uh, one barrier to people as they kind of try to get their heads around this whole concept is that uh, people, so currencies have certain characteristics. And then if they find that Bitcoin doesn't have one or more of these uh, kind of predefined characteristics, they'll, they'll kind of say does not compute and then conclude that Bitcoin needs to be rejected. The thing is that, is that this new technology has its own kind of quirks that are governed by the, the way that it's together um, so unfortunately uh, it's it's kind of technically involved you need to understand uh, elliptic curve cryptography uh, public private keys uh, uh, cryptographic hash functions and that those three would be sort of a minimum technical um, background needed to kind of understand how it is that this digital scarcity can exist without the central authority uh, That's uh, that's fascinating. Can you? Um, I mean, I love the 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 analogy between uh, the church and state. I mean, it's so so really. This is just challenging, not just. In fact, it's just it's challenging fundamental notions of how we how we understand. Um, um, I know you don't like the word currency, but 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 currency and money. Right. Yeah. It's a way to transact value with one another uh, that that doesn't have a requirement of. Um, citizenship, I suppose. I mean, it's a global network, and uh, it's on 24-7. So it, it, it does kind of cool things that are currently not really possible in the traditional uh, banking system, for example, transmitting, you know, funds around the world uh, in a matter of minutes at, you know, 3 a.m. your time. There's no such thing as banker's hours uh, in, right. in cryptocurrency. And so if you look at, you know, the disruption that for example, Amazon put on retail, in, in which one of their key selling points is that you know you don't have to wait for the store to open with Amazon. Uh, such um, disruption has been very mm -hmm. slow to happen in the financial services industry, and and to this day we, um, you know, we have ATMs and we have online access to our bank accounts. Which yes, those are twenty four seven, but 
for something like uh, wiring money overseas or um, you know a, a large number of, of transactions that aren't very simple uh, it's necessary to wait for you know a human to to show up at the office and help you which I think increasingly is becoming a sort of antiquated um, and uh, inefficient you know practice sure could you speak to, I mean, you've mentioned Bitcoin a few times, which I guess is really the, the first one that really hit, quote, pop culture, at least as I understand it. And I know people seem to use Bitcoin and crypto as almost the, the same thing, and it really isn't. I mean, could you define more broadly for our listeners crypto and, and talk about different kinds of crypto or, I guess, names of crypto and, and what you see as the, the stronger or the emergent um, one at, the, at this time? Sure. Yeah. So since the original Bitcoin white paper came out, there have been uh, literally thousands of projects that have come out. Um, because these systems are made of networks of computers just running software, it's easy for someone to, for example, copy over the Bitcoin code because it's all open source. It's all available for anyone to download and examine and change if they want to. Uh, anyone can basically, you know, modify the existing cryptocurrency code to come up with their own, uh, maybe by tweaking, you know, a, a, a few things here and there. Uh, but then um, the thing is that the value of the, of the network that results is going to be dependent on the size of the network, basically the, the number of people who buy in and agree that this new network is... Um, superior or, you know, does does things better than the original. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's a interesting space because the pace of innovation is extremely fast uh, because there is no need to get, you know, any sort of permission. It's basically just editing code and, and putting the code out there. If you can get other people to run the code, then you... You know, you have a new cryptocurrency. Uh, one of the yeah. I, I didn't real I didn't realize it was that. I don't mean to suggest it's simple, but that I didn't realize it was that easy, so to speak, to, to do this. If you understand the coding, um, it, it's it, to me, it's it, as a layperson, if you will. I, I thought it was a lot more complicated to go to market with a new crypto. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. From a technical point of view, it's it's quite easy. The difficulty comes in the network effect because the the value of the new cryptocurrency you create again it's going to be uh, proportional to something like the square of the number of people who uh, who sign on to use the the currency. Uh, so mm -hmm. then the effort becomes to try and you know basically get more people to sign up to use your currency. Well, how do you do? How do you do that? What's the differentiating factor? I mean, it's you know what what makes one better than the other, and which will lead to my next question: Which one do you think is the strongest right now? But how, what are what are people looking for who 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 understand this this asset class? Yeah, I think um, because the technical barrier to entry for really understanding this asset class is high, and people mm -hmm. also have not you know not failed to notice that Bitcoin has gone from under a penny. Uh, around 2010 to over $10,000 today. So we're talking, a, you know, a 1 million X return uh, in under a decade. Uh, and so 
people have kind of seized upon that to make kind of imitating projects that um, that seek to kind of replicate that uh, or claim to replicate that. Uh, and yeah, there, there are basically a lot of uh, low quality projects out there, I'll just say that. Um, some, some of them are designed to have kind of advertising budgets. Uh, some of them are designed to take a portion of the fees that are, uh, that in Bitcoin would be going to the miners, which is just really another word for the accountants, the computers doing the accounting work, uh, keeping track of who spent what. Those are the miners mm -hmm. of, of Bitcoin. So um, in Bitcoin, all of those fees that, that are paid to miners come from the users. Uh, but there are other projects that kind of, um, kind of siphon off a cup of those uh, fees and send them to, say, a company that then uh, puts out advertising to try and get more people to sign up for it and so on. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there are a lot of... Um, so as far as quality goes, I would say one distinguishing characteristic of a quality cryptocurrency project is the lack of a company or other kind of centralized um, organization that is trying to promote it. And so mm -hmm. for that, uh, that's actually quite a high bar. Uh, there, that eliminates uh, um, a large majority of the projects, I would say. Um, and some of the projects have, uh, you know, formal corporations behind them. Some of them have informal groups behind them that kind of collect money. Uh, but um, there are a few that don't, and uh, in which uh, the efforts of writing code are truly open source. So that is that the developers are not paid a salary in Bitcoin to contribute to Bitcoin. They, they just do it out of a sense of altruism. Uh, it's really like the symphony orchestra um, analogy going back mm -hmm. to that. It, it's mm -hmm. kind of the prestige that comes with working on a, a project that they believe strongly will be beneficial to humanity. So um, mm -hmm. among those projects mm -hmm. would be uh, Bitcoin, uh, Monero, uh, Litecoin, uh, there are a few others, uh, but, uh, oh, Ethereum is another one. Um, yeah. uh, Ethereum is interesting in that uh, the data that is stored in the blockchain, and the blockchain is simply the, the registry of the data that is agreed upon by the network. So in, block, in, in Bitcoin, the blockchain consists of the accounting entries that keep track of who spent what. Uh, in mm -hmm. Ethereum, they expand that and they attempt to store uh, in a decentralized manner the execution of software that's running. So it's a much more ambitious project. It's like uh, instead of just trying to keep track of who owns what in, uh, in far, as far as a um, of, um, metric of value, a store of value, in Ethereum, they're trying to keep track of which computer programs are at what point in their execution. So it ends up being a, a much more ambitious uh, project. And I think it's interesting from a kind of academic standpoint to see if it can be done uh, in a way that can accommodate scaling. Um, but uh, how does that impact valuation? Does that mean valuation is more, more um, real time or is that unrelated? Uh, how does 
with, 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 with Ethereum, I mean. So the way you're talking about keeping track of, of movements at the, in the programming level, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, and, again, and again, excuse me, I don't probably not using the right te terminology, but what, what you just described as the differentiator in Ethereum, what's the practical implication of that relative to that crypto? Well, I think, um, yeah, as, as far as valuation, people start to associate the value of software that you could run on the network with the value okay. of the token itself. So the, basically okay. the value of the Ether token is not simply a, um, a, a store of money, but it's also basically a type of value that you need in order to, uh, to execute code on the Ethereum blockchain. So, so it, now it's like okay. kind of a whole software ecosystem that gets conflated with the value of the token. And so this, this had a, a large run-up cycle in the last couple of years. There was uh, what's called the ICO boom, or the initial coin offering boom, mm -hmm. in which uh, a host mm -hmm. of projects which uh, based their um, kind of you know, commercial company ideas on code that runs on Ethereum kind of launched. Uh, there was a great deal of um, capital going into those projects, but... Um, in practice, uh, not all that much accountability for how those funds were spent. Uh, and so that, uh, that kind of ended up being a bit of a bubble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, clearly the, the space is, is interesting and complex and, uh, and nuanced. And so anything like that, any topic like that would create a market opportunity for people to understand it and to service it. And I think that you've done that with the creation of your company. I think Bridgeford is positioning itself to provide, um, you know, services around uh, the complexity of this asset class. And if you could talk to me about sort of the, the advisory service that you see the need for in the marketplace and why you created your company, because it sounds like um, well, that sounds like it's very clear to me that there's a big need, and I, and I know this from traveling the country and speaking and meeting with folks all over the place. There's a big need for, for a more of an academic understanding and, and differentiation between the different cryptos and understanding the technology and, and, and I think trying to tamp down this idea that it's negative um, because I think that's the, the, the wrong way to look at an asset class. And so you created your company called Sweetwater Digital Asset Consulting. Um, to fill that need, am I right? Yes, that is. Uh, I have observed uh, from my time in uh, traditional finance. So uh, basically after my executive MBA, I spent uh, six years uh, eventually becoming head of research at a small equity hedge fund. So we managed uh, approximately a billion dollars among long, short, and long only products uh, and um, uh, serviced uh, you know, uh, clients, including some large pension funds and, and so on. So I think there's quite a bit of interest uh, in among institutional investors, at least in the kind of uh, unbelievable returns that have been seen in cryptocurrency in the past. Uh, but um, the thing is that, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin did not come from a department at Goldman. Right. It, it did not mm -hmm. come from the industry itself. It came from uh, an unknown who dropped this random uh, academic paper uh, to zero fanfare 10 years ago. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course, uh, you know, the sophisticated money wants to think of itself as being sophisticated. And so, 
how can one be sophisticated if one kind of totally misses uh, an asset that does a one million X return? Um, I mean, there's going to be a strong sort of, um, you know, reflex inclination to come up with something wrong with it, you know, to to be dismissive because, you know, there's something wrong with it and there's going to be a comeuppance at the end and, you know, it's going to go to zero. Um, I think that the history of, of certainly Bitcoin shows that uh, it's very unlikely that this is going to go away. There have been right. um, there have been mm, some uh, undeniable kind of uh, bubble cycles, but um, if you look at a chart of the value of all of the world's Bitcoin, uh, and you divide that by the value of all the world's known gold reserves, all the above ground gold. Uh, and you look at that ratio, uh, basically you see a, um, a a curve that I see basically two components in it. So one of these components is a kind of exponentially uh, growing uh, appreciation. Uh, but then on top of this, there are these really kind of violent uh, up and down bubble cycles. So we're talking about like a 10x bubble and a 10x burst. Uh, but if you remove that volatility component, what you see is it's undeniably there's been sort of an exponential growth in the overall base of interest that is um, supporting the, the asset prices. So um, the thing is that the, the uh, short-term volatility component, and when I say short-term, I'm talking on, on the order of, say, two to three years, something like that. Is, has historically okay. been the, the, the length of these cycles. But of course, it's not regular, just like any other market. It's not, it's not like a, you can set your clock to it. Uh, but, you know, these, these boom and bust cycles are so large, you know, because 10x is so spectacular in the world of uh, traditional finance that basically coverage of that uh, kind of local area of the price action dominates the news coverage. Uh, and, and so you have people um, whose technical understanding of the asset class is weak. And because they don't have the technical understanding of the asset class, they basically use what they perceive other people are thinking about the asset class as their proxy for, for their due diligence. Um, so, of course, mm-hmm. on, on, in, in Wall Street parlance, that's the momentum trade. Right, so it, like basically, if the price goes up, you you decide that it's worth buying, because basically other people have propped up the price, right? <laughs> right, kind of the herd mentality. Yes, approach. exactly. It's like it's the follow the herd <laughs> because um, without a clear sort of um, base of uh, fundamental valuation, that's the easiest thing to look at. It's kind of you know to stick your finger in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. So <laughs> it, you know historically that has worked of course if you time it right but the thing is that the momentum trade works both ways so you know the last time that the the momentum uh kind of reversed was uh like two christmases ago so like the end of the year of uh, 2017 was when bitcoin hit a price of about twenty thousand per bitcoin uh, and then proceeded to drop uh, about 85 percent of its value over the next year um to down to like uh, the three thousand ish level, and since then, uh, since the beginning of twenty nineteen, 
and now it's July 2019 that we're talking. So in the six months so far of 2019, the price of Bitcoin has roughly tripled uh, to be in the uh, around the 11,000 region. So up a factor of three since the beginning of the year, but down a factor of two, down 50% since uh, two New Year's ago. So this is kind of the level of volatility that that uh, people in the crypto space have to get kind of accustomed to. And, you know, having thought about this and being having gotten accustomed to thinking about uh, these sorts of very roller coaster rides, uh, like all of the um, news stories and uh, uh, excited reporting that accompanies like a 10% rise or, or drop in the S&P is it's kind of uh, uh, mildly amusing to me at this point. <laughs> I agree. Well, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this, and I know we're in agreement, um, and we've said it a few times already today, that, you know, this this crypto is not going away. It's an asset class that has to has to be dealt with um, in one way or another. And as with every asset class or any type of investment, um, there's needs around tax planning and asset protection and privacy. And um, as you know, Bridgeford has, a, has an interest in, in applying the the powerful planning opportunities under South Dakota law in this space. And, and we, we have a very entrepreneurial mindset here. And, and um, you know, that was one of the first things you and I talked about is, well, how do you, how do you put these two worlds together and give people um, the proverbial bells and whistles that uh, people get when they hold common stock or real estate or, or whatever? And, and the answer is, it, it can be done. Um, we figured out a way to do it, and we've done it several times. And and it's an area where, where Bridgeford wants to focus on, particularly since I have a lot of passion around it. Um, so let's talk about that. I mean, you know, if you just remove the salacious aspect of the topic and, and whatever negativity there is about it, it's an asset class like any other asset class. If we define it as such, then then how do we plan with it and what do we do with it? And I think, you know, at least from my perspective, when you remove the specific topic and just approach it as an asset of, of a person that needs to be, uh, that planning needs to be wrapped around, then it kind of um, um, brings us back to traditional notices, notions of estate planning. So talk to me about that. I know we, we've explored different different ways of how um, we can add value to people in this space. So what, what do you see right. there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great topic and it's very interesting. Uh, I think a key to this is having at least a broad picture understanding of what it actually means to own cryptocurrency like uh, Monero or Bitcoin. Uh, so what it means to own cryptocurrency is that uh, one is one has knowledge of the private key that is needed to spend or send or write checks, uh, so to speak, uh, using the uh, Bitcoins or Monero that exist in an account. So, in short, knowledge of a long number associated with an account. So basically, you could think of it like a password, but it's, unlike a password, it's not something that the user is free to change on their own. And the reason is that the relationship between the account number and the password is given by a mathematical equation called the elliptic curve. So, for that reason, uh, it's not possible to uh, basically recover a password if it's forgotten. So mm. ownership of crypto is then tantamount to knowledge of the private key uh, that is uh, that enables spending from an account. And so it's this interesting 
um, situation in which speech is now money. So it's kind of the opposite of the, the Citizens United case that the Supreme Court uh, considered that determined that uh, you know, money is a form of speech. Uh, this is now speech in the form of a very large number. Knowledge of that very large number now is equivalent to money in cryptocurrency. Interesting. So, so um, as far as uh, fitting this uh, ownership uh, reality into a framework that is conducive to a trust, I think an uh, analogy that's helped me kind of understand it uh, well is the analogy uh, so. Think of a company that uh, sells soda, and they have a secret formula for a drink, right? So uh, knowledge of this formula, if it's a popular drink, so obviously like something like Coca-Cola or Pepsi would be kind of the, the kind of thing that um, actually exists like this, right? Like the secret formula for Coca-Cola is in some vault somewhere. Uh, so it, it's a similar sort of situation. It's that you have, you have um, information that would really fit on a postcard if somebody were to just write it down. But it's information that is kind of, it holds the keys to the value of, of a company. And so the private keys in cryptocurrency are similar and, and thus they can be treated similarly uh, in terms of having a, say an asset holding LLC be in possession of private keys. Uh, in other words, the, the large numbers that control uh, cryptocurrency mm -hmm. accounts. So then in that sense, uh, the LLC of a crypto holding company can tr be treated just like any other LLC in a traditional line of business that, that needs mm -hmm. to be moved into trust. And so that's really the answer. So that, that's how we neutralize the asset, so to speak, and, and make it um, um, something we can plan around and put asset protection around and privacy and all the things that we can do out of South Dakota is, is sort of creating that, that, that shell. And that, and that was something that we have wrestled with uh, at Bridgeford and, and with um, some of the top attorneys in the country is you know, the idea that this code or, or this password, if you will, is, is to, 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 <laughs> to use common language around it, is that was the issue relative to trust law in terms of who controls that. And, you know, in order to figure out who controls that um, is vitally important because, um, because of traditional notions of control when it comes to creating irrevocable trusts. You know, the, the legal problem is who has access and control over that code or password and who can control it while maintaining the integrity of, a, of an irrevocable asset protection trust because the key is these trusts have to have uh, the, the integrity of the trust needs to be intact because that's the whole reason for the planning the whole reason for the tax planning and and that was what we wrestled with right dr kim and i think the answer is what you articulated is you know you can as a or, or one can maintain control over the password <clears throat> in some sort of a structure like an llc um, while not disrupting the integrity of a, of a trust or an asset protection trust. So I think that's the answer, um, but it took us a little while to get there. Yeah, I think it's a really a elegant um, solution. I'm, I'm not a lawyer myself like you are, so I, of, of course my um, credibility here is uh, not to be uh, given much more than a big grain of salt, but uh, the, the underlying concept here in, in which the private keys that constitute ownership of cryptocurrency are simply the same equivalent to a trade secret of a business. 
that gets uh, put into trust, it's uh, I, it seems very natural. Well, and from our perspective, and again, one of the reasons why we're so passionate about it here is, you know, we always want to find ways to to take what we're doing and and, and expand it to, to different markets. And what I mean by that is, I, I'm a big believer in selecting the proper trust jurisdiction. Um, from our website, obviously, there's a lot of education around this, and, and I'm thrilled that we have a, a way to go to market to work with people who need some planning help. I mean, there's, there's, this is, this is not going away, as we keep saying, and, and, and I think rather than pretend it doesn't exist, I'd, I prefer that we embrace it, which is why I, I love the opportunity to work with you and your company, because I, I see us offering some tremendous value um, in the marketplace. Um, I love the transition uh, as we kind of wrap up here to get your thoughts of the really the future of crypto. I mean, we keep we keep saying it's not going away. Well, what does that mean, and, and what what way is it going to evolve, and and what do you where, where do you see it in thirty years and fifty years? And and because I, I I think that that's I I would love to know the answer to that question because I think that's going to help Bridgeford sort of position itself and and how you position your company. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think generally the fundamental. Uh, idea of cryptocurrency as being a way to uh, preserve a digital form of scarcity without needing a central authority to maintain it. Uh, I see that as continuing. There are some potential technological breakthroughs that could uh, to th threaten that, for example, quantum computing, uh, but um, that seems to be pretty far down the line at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other point is that as far as uh, stores of value that are not controlled by central banks, so basically looking at it from a portfolio theory perspective, if one is looking to diversify one's portfolio, it, which is mostly in traditional uh, investments like equities and, and fixed income, and look to diversify that with a portion, with, you know, like a, usually a small percentage, a few percent, going into some sort of store of value that is independent of central bank control. Uh, and traditionally, uh, that risk bucket would be taken care of by something like gold. Uh, but um, gold has the distinct disadvantage that no one has managed to uh, teach gold atoms how to play nice with uh, TCPIP, which is the internet protocol. So basically, you know, you can't email gold is, is the problem. <laughs> right. uh, and, you know, there are attempts to get around that, which really amount to issuing IOUs for gold and then, you know, emailing the IOUs for gold around, but then you have counterparty risk. So here we have um, kind of, for the first time in history, uh, for the last 10 years, there's been a way to have this uh, uh, a decentralized uh, form of value that does play nice with the Internet. And so I think, um, you know, from that point of view, uh, it certainly makes crypto look like it's still in very early days. Uh, if you mm -hmm. examine the total value of all cryptocurrency, so not just Bitcoin, but everything, even the low quality projects, uh, you add up the market cap value of all of that uh, digital asset uh, base, and you divide that by the total amount of all of the uh, gold in the world, you come up with a figure that is on the order of three or four percent. Uh, so considering that this is really uh, something like the 
first uh, instance of a emailable form of gold, sorry, emailable form of gold, um, and it's not emailed, but just electronically transmittable form of gold, uh, the utility of such an asset is potentially quite a bit larger, I would say, than, than a, um, chunks of metal that um, are shiny and look pretty, but you, know, we, you have to lug them around. So, uh, yeah, I think that um, the fundamental idea of digital scarcity is going to only get more important in the future. At the same time, there's a lot of development going into trying to make this stuff easier to understand and easier to use for uh, kind of normal, everyday people who, who don't have uh, the time or interest to, you know, think about this stuff all day. So you, you combine an increasing ease of use with a fundamental, um, uh, like, um, preservation of scarcity, and uh, I think there's an argument to be made that we're still in very early days as far as cryptocurrency goes. Now, of course, this mm -hmm. this could um, be uh, wrong in, in some ways, but um, uh, I think uh, if one compares the current valuation scale of cryptocurrency versus other similar assets, um, uh, it's uh, an argument could be made that it's uh, it's still uh, a burgeoning and growing technology. And I think we as an industry need to be prepared for it. Dr. Kim, this was unbelievably fascinating um, and, and, and um, valuable. And I, I, as I said, as we began, I feel very fortunate to have met you and, and you've taught me a lot in the last months. And I think that, um, you know, what you've been able to offer us and what you're going to be, what you are offering your your clients and, and the people you work with through your company is 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 only going to become more valuable. You know, for our listeners again, I want to mention the name of your company, um, Sweetwater Digital Asset Consulting, uh, named after your, uh, your hometown, as I recall, right? Dr. Uh, yeah, King? it's the county in Wyoming where I was born, actually. Yeah, excellent. I love that. Um, certainly, you know, check out Dr. Kim's website, um, and, and we certainly you can certainly contact Dr. Kim through through Bridgeford Trust as well. Um, but again, I, I thank you very much for the time, and I look forward to our work together going forward. Is there anything you'd like to add as we uh, as we wrap up? Uh, no, I think we're good. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for your time, and uh, and you know, for the listeners, look look for future information um, about cryptocurrency and how trust planning uh, is, is is something to consider. Um, and, and how we can bring some of the most powerful planning tools to the crypto space. I, I, and Oh, Dr. Kim, before we conclude, can you please uh, indicate where you'll be speaking over the next couple of months? I, I do want listeners to know where they may be able to, to find you. Uh, yeah, so I've been, uh, I'll be making appearances at a couple of crypto-based conferences uh, coming up. Both happen to be in Vegas. So in August uh, 2019, I'll be giving a keynote speech at uh, DEF CON Monero v Village. Uh, and so that's a large meeting of uh, computer security, uh, you know, basically computer geeks who don't necessarily have uh, um, <laughs> background in cryptocurrency, but are, you know, technically adept and curious people. Uh, also, I would say um, often uh, unfairly kind of painted with a broad brush as being, um, you know, nefarious. Mm -hmm. uh, another conference that I'll be speaking at is World Crypto Conference. Uh, that's going to be in October, uh, around uh, 
Halloween time, uh, the end of October. And again, that's in Las Vegas. And then you're also uh, you're going to be perf performing uh, the violin in, in Las Vegas too at one of the casinos while uh, you're there. Well, you know, I, I do play, uh, but for fun now. Uh, it's not professionally anymore. <laughs> exactly. Having done about you know That's 700 cool. concerts uh, under wow. payroll, that was uh, that was enough. <laughs> That's amazing. I was going to say while you're in Vegas, you might as well start your own. Uh, you know, be like an Elvis show. One at seven o'clock and at ten o'clock, <laughs> right? Well, again, fantastic. Very, very much appreciate it. Um, and uh, we look forward to our work together, Dr. King. All right. Likewise. Thanks, David. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.